Welcome, everyone, to the January issue of the Alfred Emergency Podcast Journal Club. My name is Dr. Danny Marhaba, and I'm your host. We are joined today by Professor Peter Cameron, one of the emergency medicine consultants at the Alfred Hospital, and Dr. Rob Melvin, also one of the emergency medicine consultants at the Alfred Hospital, and one of the authors of some of our publications today. Paper one. Uh, the first publication we will uh, discuss today is the FORCE study, uh, which was a randomized controlled equivalence trial in the United Kingdom. It was a prospective cohort-controlled randomized equivalence trial for children aged between 4 and 15 years of age with a distal radius um, uh, buckle fracture who were offered either bandage and immediate discharge with follow-up, of course, or rigid immobilization with a splint back slab, with the primary outcome being pain at three days as self-reported using the Wong-Baker faces scale and a host of secondary outcomes, including patient or parent reported function, satisfaction, use of analgesia, school absence, and complications within six weeks of follow-up. The sample size uh, was determined uh, using the minimum uh, clinical important difference of one point on the Wong-Baker FACES scale, and the calculation was that uh, they required 278 patients of each arm uh, because they used two different age groups. One was between four and seven, and one was eight and 15. The study and the target populations were largely similar in age and proportion of sex, and the uh, intervention and comparator were both measured. So both the bandage and the control, which was rigid immobilization, were measured as categorical nominal values with the type of splint recorded by the clinician placing it. The results or the findings of this trial was, uh, were reported um, in, the, in the manuscript, and pain was equivalent at three days with measures of 2.08 versus 3.14. And the authors conclude that this trial found equivalence in pain at three days uh, in children with a buccal fracture of the distal radius who were assigned to either the bandage group or the rigid immobilization group. And so my first question on the FORCE trial goes to Professor Peter Cameron, and it's a uh, odd question, but this one is, what's an equivalence trial? Because my understanding was most studies that we do tend to measure or to look for a difference. To demonstrate equivalence, you've got to look at both sides of the tail. So you've got to, that, that makes it harder in some ways to demonstrate equivalence than superiority or inferiority because they're sort of one tail. So the problem, you know, we haven't got a placebo. So basically, in a lot of drug trials, they're trying to show that one drug's sort of roughly similar to the other, or, you know, in this case, one treatment is roughly the same as the other. So that's, that's what equivalence is. What test you use, you know, is the subject of, you know, quite a lot of discussion. But and so you have to prove that it's not greater than a certain difference and it's not less than a certain difference, and therefore... Uh, we presume that that equivalence is implied within the pre-selected margins. And and the thing about what is less or more is, again, I, you know, like it's got to be clinically relevant. There's, you know, one point on a Wong-Baker scale that, that doesn't sort of 
you know, at one day or whatever it makes doesn't fuss me too much. What would fuss me a lot is if there was a difference in, you know, re-fracture or, or need for surgical manipulation or something concrete that would, you know, make a difference uh, when I was advising the parents you know, about what I wanted to do. So, you know, like, so in this case with the Wong Baker scale, yeah, I mean, you know, they need a bit of extra Panadol or something. Does it really, does it really matter? Especially when you take into account the inconvenience of using immobilization and so forth. So, you know, and so you so, would like to see potentially even more outcomes that were of interest. No, no, I'm happy actually with this paper. To get into the meat of it, I mean, at the end of the day, there was one patient that where there was, you know, a, a change and there were no patients that needed surgical re-manipulation. So that's out of a thousand people. I mean, that's pretty incredible. Uh, it mm. suggests that it's a fairly harmless and in inverted commas injury. And from that point of view, you know, really, you know, it, it may be that you get a little bit more pain relief or, you know, maybe a little bit less discomfort, whatever. But in terms of the things that matter to us as clinicians most, they're really, it, there's nothing to see. <laughs> so, you know, whatever's most convenient for the parents and, and the patient themselves, to me, is the thing that you should be doing. That makes sense. Uh, Rob Melvin, your thoughts on what Peter said? Yeah, thanks, Danny. And I really like this paper. It reaffirms to me that a bandage and advice to the child and to the parent that, you know, you won't have a bad outcome from this injury. This paper sort of shows that, as Peter's already mentioned, that none of the children needed surgical manipulation. And your healing will be the same whether you wear a bandage or whether we put a splint on and you might have a little bit more pain and require some paracetamol or or other very simple painkillers for a couple of days more so with bandage than with the uh, rigid immobilization but as as a as a parent the difficulty of you know um, managing a splint in a particularly in a younger child, this paper shows that it's not really necessary. You know, you've got you've got equivalents with a bandage and some maybe some extra painkillers. So I think it's um it's really useful paper to be able to to say to parents in particular to say, look, a bandage is fine. Some painkillers, if your child is fine with taking painkillers, this they're gonna be absolutely fine and and in a few days' time or have no adverse long-term outcomes from the injury. So I, I really like the paper. Now, Alfred Health runs two campuses. One of them is a community hospital which sees a lot of pediatric patients in Sandringham. And Rob Melvin, you're, you, have a, you have a fairly significant role in, 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 help in running that department specifically as well. And so my question is, with any adjuncts such as wrist splints, do you find a role or see a role with wrist splints in that environment, if it's even necessary? Well, I think uh, in this paper shows that in children it's probably not necessary. And and my role at Sandringham is I'm currently the acting director there, mm. and so have a oversight of you know the types of injuries we get. And as you rightly say, at, at Sandringham Emergency Department, we see a lot of children with forearm injuries, a variety of you know from everything from a torus fracture through to supracondylars. And again, going back to this paper states to me that in a in a torus buckle fracture with distal radius 
children can be managed with with a bandage rather than needing a splint. And I think although there's some cost associated with wrist splints, both to adult ones and to children, I think they are generally a good option, if that's what you're, you're asking, Danny, they are a good option rather than necessarily needing a plaster of Paris splint. So I think they're a good option to have, but in this particular injury, as this paper shows, you're just as well using a bandage and, and patient, educa- patient education. Thank you. My last question goes to Peter Cameron. Prof, in the meat of the paper, they included um, kids with distal ulnar fractures. Does it usually change your thought process when you see a distal ulnar fracture with a buccal fracture? Or are you comfortable that the ulna primarily deals with the elbow joint and the radius primarily deals with the wrist joint and you just make sure that it's not a green stick? What are your thoughts on the inclusion of, of ulnar fractures within the just bandage group? I think, I mean, this this paper didn't look at that difference, so we can't, mm. all we're doing is extrapolating. But clinical experience would suggest that if it's a buccal fracture, it's a buccal fracture. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter where it is. And so I would be sort of comfortable extending it to the ulna, uh, you know, even though there's less patients and so forth. But, you know, I, I mean, if you wanted to really test that scientifically, you would need to actually... To isolate it, for it yeah, and test it separately. Yeah. yeah. But but I think you know real you know I think most clinicians would say a uh, buccal fracture is a buccal fracture. Any more thoughts on this paper before we move on to the next one? No, I, I think you know these sort of studies. You know, like it's it's very simple, it's very you know practical, but important studies, as Rob mentioned, because it's sort of what we all think. You know, in our back of our minds, before we say to a parent or whatever, you know, this is what I'm going to recommend. It's nice to have this to sort of back you up and say, well, there was a large study with a thousand patients and it came to the conclusion. That sort of just makes it all feel a lot more solid than, you know, in my experience, this is a nice way to do it. <laughs> and it, it gives you evidence when you're having a chat with parents to be able to cite. Yeah. Rob, do you agree? Do you do you foresee yourself sort of citing this at some point to parents and saying, look, this is the evidence we do have? Yeah, completely, completely agree. You know, some parents have more health literacy than others, and many parents will be very much guided by you as the expert managing these kinds of patients who who don't need an orthopedic surgeon's input. So this this paper does give me that evidence to present if asked by the parents or if I feel that I need it as part of my explanation of what we're doing. So one other thing that we didn't discuss was the follow-up, and I think that's equally important. I mean, our orthopedic clinics and things are overrun. To be able to just sideline this whole group of patients and say, don't need follow-up is very important. Mm, GP follow-up, yeah. Thank you both. We will move on to our next manuscript. Paper two. Which is a manuscript that is dear to us. It is the uh, MAPED study, which was published in Emergency Medicine Australasia. It's the mid-arm point in pediatric study, an effective procedural aid for safe pleural decompression in trauma. The uh, target population was uh, children less than 18 years of age attending any of four emergency departments located in either Australia or Ireland who required a chest x-ray for any reason. And uh, the intervention was uh, the mid-arm point was measured. We do this in adults in, in many hospitals. The mid-arm point was measured and the chest wall was marked at that level in these children. A radio opaque sticker was then placed on the mark 
and an x-ray was taken with these arms abducted. The uh, comparator for this study was effectively the presumed gold standard of intercostal spaces four to six, as identified on the chest wall x-ray by a consultant radiologist. And the outcome was the proportion of markers localized to the correct space, intercostal spaces four to six, through the use of the mid-arm point by interpretation of a consultant radiologist versus compared with those that were in intercostal spaces one to three and those that were identified as intercostal spaces seven to eight. It was a prospective cohort controlled trial. The sample size determination was uh, pragmatic. Um, They collected the data that they could. The intervention and the comparator were were measured uh, using a tape marking measure to find the mid-arm point of the adducted humerus. And uh, they measured from the acromion and the electronon as bony landmarks to measure to the midpoint. And then they used a pen to mark. And then they used that uh, radio-opaque marker. A total of 392 children participated. Some of them had both sides marked. And they found that 83% of the markers were sitting within the safe zone for pleural decompression. Interestingly, uh, the authors noted uh, during their analysis uh, that in children above the age of four, the, these patients were m- much more likely to have their markers placed to uh, caudally. And so uh, they initiated a post hoc analysis where they introduced a modifier or an adjustment. Uh, they found that the best adjustment they could introduce was that children more than four years of age, should they raise the marker by one intercostal space, rostrally or superiorly, one one rib space above, they would get more accurate results in that patient group. The conclusions of the authors were that the MAP technique, the mid-arm point technique, reliably determines a safe site for pleural decompression in children with an age-based adjustment. Um, The mid-arm point in pediatrics rule, they label it, uh, in children aged more than or equal to four years, use the mid-arm point and go one intercostal space up to hit the safe zone. Whereas if they're less than four years of age, use the mid-arm point. That's a, that's a, that's a lovely conclusion. It's a conclusion that's, that's helpful and easy to retain. First question goes to Dr. Rob Melvin. Are intercostal catheters or finger uh, decompression uh, thoracostomies in children a common procedure? They're not a common procedure in Australia, but, but worldwide, and, and paediatric trauma is one of the leading causes of, of death. And whilst I'm not suggesting that our study done across a number of centres in Australia and one centre in Ireland is immediately applicable to every country in the world, I think it is a, a simple time-effective measurement to use, which is going to give you nine times out of 10 is going to get you into the safe triangle where the plural decompression needs to occur. So the other thing to say is whilst in Australia, paediatric trauma-related plural decompression is uncommon, when it does occur, it's an incredibly stressful environment. Children often have a great um, capacity to cope with significant illness or injury until they don't cope. And so to be confronted with a you know large traumatic pneumothorax in a child who's been in a motor vehicle accident who who you know maybe is brought to your emergency department which isn't a trauma center then um to to have this um, well we hope as authors we hope that this rule 
will allow you uh, as an emergency clinician to, to take away some of the stressors associated with that situation and to use this measurement to accurately and safely place your, your intercostal catheter. Especially when current practice, give or take, involves us placing the, the, the catheter outside of the safe zone around 50% of the time, if you believe some of the data. Yes, yes, some of the, the previous data. And look, you know, this is a very difficult area to study because at least in, in Australia, you know, pediatric trauma, major trauma is uncommon. So as you stated in your summary of the study, you know, to, to, to have over 700 markers mm. placed on, you know, children who are having x-rays for other reasons, but we've got sort of 700 measurements that have been used to come up with this, this rule, which has been validated with consultant radiologists. I think um, you're never going to get 700 pediatric trauma cases enrolled in such a study. So it, it was a nice, concise study done multi-centre and, and internationally. And it was a, we, we would have recruited more participants had it not been for the start of the COVID pandemic, which is when we um, had to stop recruiting. No, definitely. Thank you. Peter Cameron, Do you what, what new information do you take from, from this data set and this analysis? As Rob's already said, you know, the, the ability to do this in real patients is zip, uh, certainly in Australasia. And this was an elegant way of getting around that because the real issue is, can you estimate where the safe triangle is? And this study demonstrates that most of the time you can. I was a bit surprised that it wasn't a little bit better in inverted commas. As in the accuracy of the midarm point in kids. Yeah, but there are a number of things that come into it, you know, like habitus and all this sort of stuff. But as you stated, previous studies have shown that, you know, clinicians, especially those unfamiliar with performing these procedures, get it wrong quite commonly. This would definitely increase the the hit rate in the correct area more often. And even though it was a sort of almost a limitation of the study, the idea that you could, you know, with the older children, just by moving it up one, make it better, actually is quite a useful thing when you're sort of trying to work out exactly where to put the catheter. It's it's actually something to remember that it's more safe to go up rather than down because, you know, if, if you've got to go somewhere, then it's probably better to go up. Because uh, most of the malplacements or suboptimal placements, especially in kids greater than four, were too caudally, too down. Yes, yes. And, you know, like I, I part of my role in the state trauma system has been to audit it for the last 20 years. You know, intercostal catheters are one of the simplest things we do, but they're also <laughs> one of the things that cause, you know, a lot of the complications and anything that makes it easier. Uh, and this is a very simple, practical study. And, and you know, congratulations to the author, authors on, on getting it out there because it's another aid. It's not foolproof. And if you, you know, if they're big or deformed or in some way it's difficult, you know, you need to obviously correlate it with the clinical situation. But it's a, another useful aid. Dr. Melvin, so you're an author on this study. What are your thoughts on the challenges that you faced? and future directions in this area of evidence. I'd like to acknowledge the other authors and, and in particular lead author, um, Dr. Nula Quinn and uh, mm-hmm. Professor Warwick Teague at, at Royal Children's. It was, it, was a, it was a study that came together over a teaching forum, a sort of multi-hospital 
teaching forum where we we discussed there's no evidence in pediatrics for this you know what what do people think it actually was an interesting process to get it up and running across multiple sites requiring you know ethics at every site because ethics in pediatric studies are are even more rigid and and difficult to obtain than in maybe in adult studies and so there was there was the there was a few challenges initially around multi-center ethics approval and then the lead author moved countries back to her home country of Ireland and and actually that that helped in many ways because then she was able to recruit patients from another center just you know again broadening the breadth of patients that were recruited and from from my personal perspective we recruited nearly all of these patients at our Sandringham emergency department which is a, a much smaller center than than the Alfred but it does see quite a lot of pediatric presentations about a third of our presentations so this really pleasingly to get some research done at Sandringham hospital and um, it shows that all even smaller emergency departments can have the capacity to be involved in research and I was really pleased that we were able to do that from Sandringham hospital because from an Alfred health perspective nearly all of our research comes out of the Alfred emergency and trauma center Thanks both for 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 your thoughts. I, I thought it was a I thought it was a great study. We I, I definitely will carry some of the conclusions on with me because it's frankly it's the best evidence we have in this particular topic to date. Paper three. Our next uh, manuscript is titled "Early Post Injury Screen Time and Concussion Recovery." It was a publication in the journal Pediatrics in 2022. Target population was 8 to 16-year-olds who presented to the emergency department within 48 hours of sustaining a concussion or orthopedic injury. The intervention was, or the exposure, I should say, was uh, the amount of screen time these kids were subjected to. Comparator was a group of orthopedic injured patients. The outcome was the post-concussion symptom severity. It was a, a cohort controlled trial. The authors state that the study was a planned secondary data analysis of the advancing concussion assessment in pediatrics, the ACAP study, which was a prospective longitudinal cohort study of children and adolescents who sustained a concussion or orthopedic injury. The outcome variables used were the health and behavior inventory, it's recommended as a primary outcome measure in the National Institute of Neurological Disorders and Stroke for uh, sports related concussions. And the results were that screen time was found to be a significant but non-linear moderator of group differences in post-concussion symptom severity uh, for parent-reported somatic as well as self-reported cognitive symptoms. They found that both high screen time but also interestingly low screen time were associated with relatively more severe symptoms in the concussion group compared to the orthopedic injury group during the first 30 days post-injury, but not after 30 days. The authors conclude that high screen time in the first 7 to 10 days was associated but not strongly associated with worse symptoms, and that low screen time was also associated with symptoms, and they were relatively more symptoms um, or, or, or slightly more severe symptoms. They also found that other risk factors were more important in predicting post-concussion symptoms. And so the authors conclude that these findings support advising moderation rather than blanket restrictions and screen time. 
especially after the first 48 hours. There was a conflict of interest. One of the authors, Dr. Yates, was an author of the Health and Behavioral Inventory, but he didn't derive any income from it. My first question goes to Peter Cameron. Do you take much change in your practice from the evidence that's provided here? No, I found this a fairly difficult study to interpret, to be honest. I always worry about cohort studies where there's an association because there are inherent biases in these associations. So it's interesting they found that a lot of screen time or a deficit of screen time both had correlations. And you can imagine if you were off the planet, you know, with a post-concussion syndrome, you couldn't you wouldn't want to watch TV. But then again, you might just be staring at the screen and not taking it in. You know, there's there's sort of lots of ways you could interpret that. And and I'm not, you know, I mean, I'm presuming, I know they didn't actually look at what the, how they were interacting with the screen, <clears throat> which would be quite important. So in terms of interpreting their association, I think it's very problematic. So that's the first point. Second point is in terms of, you know, advising parents and so forth. I mean, <clears throat> there's studies going back 20 to 25 years showing the factors that are important, and they they haven't really changed. So, you know, people with pre-existent problems, people who are, you know, type A personalities, people who are anxious or depressed or whatever, all these things help to predict people who run into trouble. And in terms of intervention, the single most important intervention that's been shown to make a difference is to tell people, they're not going to be able to concentrate well for the week after the injury. There are some, you know, for people who have ongoing symptoms, there are some strategies that therapists can help with, but that's for a very small percentage of the total. But in terms of screen time, I mean, clearly you wouldn't be advising mum and dad to, you know, either spend a whole lot of time or or to ban it. I, I think to ban it would be probably problematic as well. So, you know, moderation is uh, like most things in life is generally good for health. As we discussed at the Journal Club, you know, I think as a parent, you would find it very difficult to ban a child from screen time. In fact, a- you could say they tried, not these authors, but uh, but McNow and all um, had, uh, had a prospective randomized controlled trial last, oh, not last year anymore. Uh, in 2021. And they tried to get parents to ban uh, or to say no screen time. And they found an average of 45 minutes per week in in, in that cohort compared to around 3.5 or 4. I don't remember hours in the uh, OK screen time group. And and as you know, with child behavior, if you say you can't do it, then generally you fail. If you say, (laughs) if you try and limit it, you've got more success. But I think I mean, you know, clearly you wouldn't want the kid to be just sitting in front of the screen for hours on end. But saying that you should ban it, I don't think this in any way correlates with that. I I really don't think it makes any difference from the current recommendations with regard to screen time. Rob Melvin, what do you tell the parents of kids that you see? I, I, like Peter, didn't really take much from this particular study I, I do think it's a presumably in the pediatric world is a burgeoning area of research because particularly tablets now and children's use of tablets for both for schooling and for socializing and entertainment you know in the last five ten years at least in uh, many areas of Australia has exponentially increased so I, I'm, I'm sure there are probably some better studies being undertaken at the moment 
around, you know, maybe tablet use. It's got to be a bit more specific than screen time because that just covers so many different modalities. But maybe tablet use after a head injury, you know, is more or less, maybe there will be some evidence that comes out in the next few years around that because, you know, children playing games on a tablet is very different to a child watching Peppa Pig or Bluey on the television, you know, the, the in terms of the interaction and, and the way that the brain maybe has to, to work. So this study doesn't help me at all, but I think I imagine that there is going to be increasing papers, publications around maybe specifically tablet use uh, in the next couple of years. I think one uh, improvement could be, you know, like there's no reason why you couldn't have an app that measured the time and the type of activity. And that, as as Rob's saying, would be much more useful because I, I think watching, you know, Bluey or something is very different to playing an interactive game and doing educational resources. Especially uh, a complex game like Tetris. Um, yeah. But that's interesting because because iPhones currently do monitor our, our time and they give us weekly reports sometimes. Yeah, well, I'm sure um, some of our Google friends and so forth would know a lot about what we're all doing. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Any advice, Rob or Peter, to registrars, trainees, or other docs in, in the emergency department about what to tell parents? There's, there's very good instructions now on, on how to manage concussion, some of which is evidence-based and some of which is consensus-based. But as I said, the, the strongest evidence is reassuring people that you know they won't be quite right for a week or two is, is very important. Giving them, you know, online, you know, there's good online material now with the children's and other other uh, guideline groups with this sort of information on them. And as I said, for those with persistent symptoms, there are, depending on what the exact problem is, sometimes it's purely a, a middle ear problem. Sometimes it's, you know, they've they've got cognitive problems, concentration problems. Each of those has specific remedies. So it's if they've got persistent symptoms, it's worth identifying exactly what the issue is. But that's, you know, first week or two, I think it's just a matter of reassuring people that that's normal. Rob Melvin? Uh, no, I agree. I think, I mean, there's so many variables in terms of the the type of injury, the age of the child, the personality of the child, their, their baseline screen time. Are they primary school age? Are they secondary school age? There's, 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 there's too many variables to give sort of just uniform advice, but, but I agree with with Peter, you know, in general, I like to say to parents if they've if their child has had a type of concussion, is that the brain needs a bit of a rest, particularly for these first few days, maybe up to a week. I can't tell you for sure exactly how long a recovery to back to baseline is going to occur, and they should watch out for um, maybe uh, activities that make the child. Worse, for example, it might be screen time, but it might be television, it might be listening to music. So there, there needs to be a bit of a patient-centered approach depending on all those variables. Thank you both for your time. That was Professor Peter Cameron and Dr. Rob Melvin, both consultants at Alfred Health. I was your host, uh, Dr. Danny Marhaba, and have a lovely evening. Mm-hmm.